Well, good morning, Faith Community Church. It is good to be here. I bring you greetings from Mount Vernon Baptist Church down in Sandy Springs. We often pray for you as a church, and my guess is that with me being here this morning, we've prayed for you this morning at Mount Vernon. Uh, So we're grateful for your partnership in the gospel. We're grateful for this church up here in Woodstock. And I bring you personal greetings as well. This church holds a, a dear place in my heart, though I've never been a member. As Shane said, I attended quite frequently, actually, for a period of my life when I lived down in Montgomery. And if I remember right, um, Shane, when we knew what area of Atlanta we would be moving to, we asked him for some church recommendations, knowing that it would be kind of a long journey to come here to Faith Community, and his recommendation was was Mount Vernon. Uh, Grateful for that council, because that church has meant quite a lot to us, as has this church. My wife and I have attended a couple of counseling conferences many years ago now, gotten to know some of the staff and members. So this church has been a a blessing to me personally. And so it's a joy to be able to come and preach to you uh, this morning. Uh, So for those of you who know my family or have just heard some of that introduction and and what I've said, you've probably figured out that I grew up around here originally. And it was several years ago now at a a Christmas Eve service at a a large church uh, not too far from here uh, that our family went. We went to the Christmas Eve service at the church. We didn't show up all that much ahead of the start of the, uh, the, start of the service, and it was packed. I mean, this church was, was packed, packed. We were lucky to get seats. We got seats in the, the back of the auditorium, and right before the service started, another family arrived. So even later than, than we arrived, they hurriedly walked in. It was a father, uh, his wife, a few kids, looked around and realized that it was going to be pretty difficult to find seats. If they found seats, it may not be together. And I will never forget what the father said. He he turned to his wife and said something like, well, I tried, but there aren't any seats left, so let's go. And with that, they turned and left. They couldn't have been there for more than five seconds. So they got all dressed up. They got in the car. They got their family together, came to the church, came in and saw the crowds there and turned and left. And the message was, was pretty clear. This, this father did not want to be there. Uh, he was essentially saying to his wife, I did what you asked. I came. I tried. Don't you see the situation? Uh, there's nothing more I can do. Let's go. So I don't know what that man's heart is or was that day. I don't know what the circumstances were in his life. I don't know what kind of challenges he may have been encountering. But at least for that night, he was not there to worship Jesus. He was not there to worship the God who took on flesh. If that man wasn't a Christian, he he certainly didn't see his need for a savior. And if he was, he, at least for that moment, had lost his awe over the work that Christ had done in his heart. And though I'm, I'm sure that there were others in that sanctuary that evening who felt the same way that that man did, he walked into a room of people gathered there to worship Jesus, God who took on flesh, and he missed it. He didn't understand what was going on. He didn't understand why the people were gathered. He was not seeing Jesus for who he is, and he left. So if you will, please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, because this morning we're going to examine another story in which the people present did not see Jesus for who he was. As we come to this story, Jesus has just began his public ministry, and and the different reactions to Jesus are beginning to crystallize among the people. And in our story, we see some who are confronted with the powerful and authoritative Son of God and missed it. They did not have eyes to see or ears to hear the Savior who stood in their midst. 
But we're also presented with a story in which a few people responded rightly in faith. So this, this text is going to be familiar to most, if, if not all of you. It's the story from Mark's gospel of Jesus healing the paralytic, the man who was you know, lowered down through the roof by his friends to, to see Jesus. And the main point of the story is to demonstrate our own need for forgiveness and to make it clear that Jesus is the only one with the power and the authority to forgive sins. But this account from Mark's gospel This story of Jesus also invites us to respond. It invites a response from those who hear. Uh, So follow along with me as I read from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he, he being Jesus, was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, this morning I want to examine the story kind of through the lens of these various characters in the story and Jesus' response or or interactions with these characters and then really close by asking you a question or ask you to consider a question and that is what is your own response to Jesus? So I've got three points for us to consider this morning. The first being the friends of the paralytic and Jesus' response. The second being the scribes and Jesus' response. And then finally, Jesus and your response. Uh, So the first being the friends of the paralytic and Jesus' response. So if we look at the text, these these first two verses kind of set the scene for us. Jesus has just returned to the city of Capernaum. It's a city in Galilee. It kind of served as something of Jesus' home base during his Galilean ministry or or in the early part of his public ministry. And he he was staying at a home. And Mark reports that Jesus seemed to be trying to keep a low profile. He didn't want the people to know he was there. However, word leaked. There was a leak. Word spreads that Jesus is back in town, and it seems like immediately people flock to see him. So many people that that Mark tells us that there's not even room at the door. I mean, they had been so crowded in there that if, if you wanted to get in to see Jesus, you could not. And so in some sense, even at this early stage in Jesus's ministry, we see that there's a tremendous interest in the person of Jesus about what he has been doing. Word has spread. If we were to rewind, or if we do rewind a bit to Mark chapter 1, we see that Jesus comes on the scene, starting in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, and he begins his ministry by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and immediately giving, and then immediately thereafter giving demonstrations, really of his own power, his own authority, that God's kingdom has come near. And so at the early part of his ministry, Jesus is in Capernaum at that time as well. He enters Capernaum. The people of that city recognize his authoritative teaching as he begins teaching in the synagogues. 
He goes on to cast out a demon. He continues healing people and casting out more demons over the course of his early ministry. And so just throughout Mark chapter 1, we're given this picture of Jesus' authority over the physical, over the spiritual realm. We see pictures of the power of darkness a little bit on the run as Jesus is now here on earth, that the kingdom of God has drawn near. And so before long, with all these signs and wonders that Jesus is performing, even really this authoritative teaching that he's given, uh, before long, Mark reports that in Capernaum, his fame became so great that in, in Mark one thirty three, the whole city was gathered together at the door. So it sounds very similar to, to our text this morning, right? So in, in light of this, Jesus makes a decision to withdraw from Capernaum and go to other cities in Galilee. And in fact, he, in Mark one thirty eight, he gives something of a purpose statement to his disciples by telling them that his preaching ministry, the reason he was going to go to these other cities was to preach the word. And that was his primary purpose or his, his primary mission. And so something that we see echoed in our text today and what Jesus makes clear in our text today is that the signs and wonders he performed weren't an end in and of themselves. It was not the reason he came. Jesus didn't come for our physical needs. He came to save the lost. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to minister to our spiritual needs. And so as Jesus moves about Galilee and these, in these other cities preaching the word, he continues to heal. His fame continues to spread to the point that at the end of Mark chapter 1, Mark reports that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So at this point in Jesus's ministry, that's what happened. It explains why he tries to quietly slip back into Capernaum here, because he could not openly enter a town, or what happened when the news leaked that he was back in Capernaum uh, would happen. His ability to preach the word would be limited as the crowds limited his access and crowded in to to see these works that he were doing. Uh, So even as this crowd gathers, though, in Mark chapter 2 and in our text this morning, we see that Jesus takes time to teach them. He's at work proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And into that scene comes the paralytic and his four friends. So you can, you know, picture yourself in the shoes of the paralytic and his friends, right? I think it's, I think it's safe to assume that this man has been paralyzed for a long time. He's been unable to walk, perhaps for his whole life. And at least whenever it happened, at, at this point in time, he's confined to a lifetime of immobility, a, a lifetime of want and need, and his friends knew it. But then there's this, this ray of hope. Uh, Jesus, this, this man who's been healing all the sick and the lame brought to him, well, he's back in town. And so in great hope and desperation, these four men take up the bed of their friend and they carry him to see Jesus. But there's a problem. They get to the house only to find that there are so many people. Not only can they not take their friend in, likely not one of them could have entered and kind of squirmed their way through the crowd to see Jesus if they had wanted to. Uh, and now some of you may be sitting here this morning thinking if that was you, you might have reacted a little bit like that man at Christmas Eve. Hey, sorry, buddy. We gave it a good effort. We aren't going to be able to make it in. Come on, let's go. We maybe try again another day. But that's not what these men did. Despite the obstacles of the crowd, these friends proved themselves to be faithful. They proved themselves to be devoted and persistent, and they demonstrate great faith. Instead of giving up and heading home, they carry their friends to the roof. They carry their friend to the roof of the house and dig their way to see Jesus. 
So it was, it was common for the homes in that time to have flat roofs. That was the design. There'd be staircases on the outside of the homes leading up to these, room, uh, these roofs, which were made of mud, thatch, tile. I think in Luke's account of this same story, he says that this particular roof was, was made of tile. And so it would have been quite possible for these men to make a hole in the roof, but it would not have been quite possible for them to do it without others or the people down below noticing. It would have made a mess. It would have drawn the attention of the crowds, and it would have drawn the attention of of Jesus himself. But these men were willing to risk that embarrassment or the attention that they were going to draw to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. So as just a a quick aside, brothers and sisters, I I hope your desire is to be a friend like this. I mean, men and women who love and serve their friends in the ways that these men did. I mean, just think of the sacrifices they made on the behalf of, of their friend. And, and what a gift to have friends like these four. And, and this paralytic man was not a friend who was going to be able to return any favors to these individuals. I mean, he can't walk. He's going to be in need for his whole life. And, and yet these four friends cared more for their friend's good than their own comfort and perhaps even their own reputation as they get to a roof of a house and start digging through with uh, virtually the whole city, it seems, gathered uh, to here. And I also pray that, that you're marked by the same desire to draw near to your Savior. You know, it can be easy to, to simply lose the battle to get out of bed in the morning. But these men were uh, to, you know, turn to, the Lord, to turn to the Lord in prayer or in his word, and, and yet these men were willing to dig through a roof to get to Jesus. But really what I don't want us to miss is, I don't think we should miss the fact that this undoubtedly interrupted Jesus' teaching, and yet even though Jesus gets interrupted, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't rebuke these men, He has compassion on them, and he gives them his full attention. Now, to be honest, you know, just think of yourself in a similar situation. How many of you would have responded in the same way? How do you respond when you're interrupted? Uh, When your kids pull you away from what you're doing because it sounds like they're jumping through the ceiling. Uh, When a neighbor catches you in a driveway conversation when you get home from work and all you want to do is go inside, grab some dinner, sit down, and relax— When your spouse interrupts you reading or watching TV to ask you a question, when a friend asks you to give up part of your weekend to help them move, do you respond in those moments with the love and compassion that Christ did? Do you serve others by giving them your attention? Or do you serve yourself by getting angry and impatient, by being dismissive of others? You know, fundamentally, our our time is, is not our own. It's a gift of God to be used for his glory. And so, friends, I think we should take note of the way Jesus loved and served these men and also note that by his love and compassion, by the attention that he gives these men, he creates a teaching moment for the rest of those who are present that day. You know, so at this point in the story, these men have dug a hole in the roof. They're lowering a man down through the roof uh, to see Jesus. Now, I'm not an expert on first century culture, but I don't think this is probably a sight that they saw every day. So the whole crowd has got to be waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. Like all their eyes have to be fixed on this man being lowered down. Uh, Here is a man. Here is Jesus who's been healing. He's been casting out demons. Is he going to heal this man? I mean, this had to be what the friends expected. It's why they brought him. It had to be what the paralytic himself expected. It seems like it's likely that that's what the crowds themselves expected Jesus to do. They expect Jesus to heal this man. But instead, Jesus, seeing their faith, says, son, your sins are forgiven. And so like the plot of a good book or your favorite movie, this is the twist in the story intended to draw our attention. 
Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness was surprising. Everyone was waiting to see what he's going to do, whether he's going to heal this man. He offered forgiveness instead. And in doing so, he he revealed a fundamental truth, a fundamental truth that we need to see and Mark is intending to teach, that the paralytic had a much deeper and more fundamental need than to be healed from his paralysis, than to be healed from his physical needs. Now, he needed healing and cleansing from the sin that resided in his heart. His greatest need was for forgiveness. You know, physical healing can only solve our, our earthly problems, the trials that we face here on earth. It does nothing for our eternal problems. Uh, we need forgiveness for that, to be made right with God, to be cleansed from our sin is what we need. This is the greatest need of us all. We've all sinned, and our sins have created a separation between us and God, and, and that separation can only be closed by, place, closed by placing our faith in the Savior who died in our place. Well, that's the, that's the truth Mark, Mark is teaching. It's the truth that Jesus was teaching by healing the sins of this man. Well, placing their faith in Jesus is exactly what these friends did. If you notice in the text, it's, it's when Jesus sees the faith of these friends who went to such great lengths to get their friend to him that he forgives the paralytic sins. Uh, the faith of these friends seemed to be a, a desperate, a resolute faith in the person of Jesus. They weren't simply reluctantly willing to kind of bring their friend to the, to the house that day. No, they were desperate to see Jesus. They had faith that it was Jesus. It was only Jesus who could heal their friend. And they, they were convinced. I mean, it was demonstrated by the great lengths that they went to get their friend to Jesus. Their faith was on display in their actions. Uh, it's interesting, in just a minute, we'll see that Jesus was able to perceive the thoughts of the, of the scribes, but here Jesus saw. He saw the, the faith demonstrated by the actions of these men. He saw their faith. And this type of resolute faith is commended by Jesus throughout the Gospels. There's the woman who believes simply by touching his garment she would be made well. And when he heals her, Jesus tells her it is her faith that made her well. See that in Mark chapter 5. Jesus exhorts Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, to believe he can heal even when Jairus' daughter is pronounced dead. And he raises his daughter back to life. Again, Mark chapter 5. Jesus rewards the persistent faith of the Syrophoenician woman and casts the demon from her daughter. You can read about that in Mark chapter 7. And so this is the kind of faith that these men seem to be demonstrating. Now, for those of you who have your, your theological antennas up, you may struggle with the fact that it is the friend's faith that leads Jesus to forgive I mean, not the friends. Maybe we presume that Jesus forgave the friends as well, but not the friends. He forgives the paralytic. Now, to that point, we, we might say that it could be that the paralytic had, had similar faith to these friends, right? If, if the paralytic simply told his friends something like, hey, would you mind taking me to see Jesus? I'm really not sure if it's going to do any good. I've kind of tried everything else. I don't really have any doctors specializing in healing from paralysis here in Capernaum. So what have I got to lose? Well, if that was his attitude, I I really have a hard time seeing his friends getting to a full house and deciding to haul him up on a roof and and dig their way to see Jesus. You know, perhaps. But regardless of whether that is true, the forgiveness offered to the paralytic is perfectly consistent with the biblical and reformational truths that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. God graciously sent Jesus to earth to call sinners to repentance. And though many heard and many saw and we just have crowds that are gathering right now, God graciously gave the gift of faith to these men. 
And at some point to the paralytic too, as he's forgiven and responds in faith to obedience to Christ when Jesus tells him to, to take up his mat and, and go home. And if anything, the fact that the, tech draw, the text draws attention to the faith of the friends and not the paralytic, well, it puts to bed any notion that it was the work or the effort of the paralytic that led to his salvation. No, it was God's grace alone. It was a free gift of forgiveness uh, to the paralytic. These friends, they demonstrated a desperate and resolute faith in Christ alone, the only one who could heal or save. And then what happens at the end of the story? Both the paralytic, as, we re- as you can read in, in Luke's account of this same story, and those present gave glory to God for what he had done. So Mark includes this episode from the ministry of Jesus, one, to highlight our fundam- fundamental need for forgiveness, but second, to demonstrate the power and authority and divinity of Jesus, the one who had the power to forgive sins. And the reality is that God saved sinners by his grace, and he chose before the foundation of the world to save the paralytic, the same as he, do- as he did for each and every one of you who have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. So don't let this story trouble you. Don't wish that Mark had included a lengthy theological explanation at the end to help you out. The reality is that being both fully man and fully God, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of these friends. He knew what was in the hearts of the paralytic. He had the power to transform their hearts. And instead, instead of letting this story trouble you, marvel at our gracious God who sent his son into the world to save sinners. And for Jesus, who can save to the uttermost. Friends, the paralytic is a a picture of us all, unable to take even the first step of faith apart from Jesus' call to take up our mat or our cross and follow him. So brothers and sisters, let this story lead you to praise the Lord for his grace and his mercy to you. Well, the the second thing I want us to see is the scribes in Jesus's response. Uh, So look with me starting at at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, we've been living firmly in the Twitter age for some time now, which means that people can basically express any opinion that they have at any time to, to anyone for any reason. It's, pretty, it's fairly well documented that this has not been particularly healthy for our public discourse, to our civility, to our attitudes towards one another. People simply tweet without thinking or listening, and, and they certainly tweet without understanding. But one of the funnier things to come out of all this instant fire communication and uninformed tweeting is multiple instances of people making fools of themselves for being ignorant of who the person was to whom they were tweeting. One of my favorites is a fan of a football team who tries to insult a fellow Twitter user by calling him a fair-weather fan, only to learn that that man was actually a player on that very football team. There's a, another instance, I think, of the prime minister of a, of a country tweeting some breaking national news and being asked by another Twitter user to provide a source for, for his information. And there are, are multiple instances of authors being asked by oblivious Twitter users whether they've read the works that they have, in fact, themselves written. Uh, the point is that these people did not know who they were tweeting to. They did not understand. Uh, 
Well, it's a little bit of what the scribes do in response to Jesus, right? Jesus tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven, and immediately some of the scribes begin questioning in their hearts. Essentially, their question is, who does this Jesus fellow think he is? Who is he to forgive sins? So they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and I think rightly recognize that it is only God who can forgive sins. They realize that Jesus is making a claim reserved for God alone. The problem is they don't know who Jesus is. You might be tempted to give the scribes a pass here because it's true that only God could forgive sins. But in in Matthew's account of this story, Jesus' response to the scribes is telling. When they question, as Jesus responds to their questioning, he says, he tells the scribes, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus makes it clear that these questions are coming from the evil that are in the hearts of these scribes. And the point is, is clear. The scribes came that day in skepticism. They came that day opposed to Jesus. They came in opposition. Their hearts were opposed to Jesus. They didn't come with kind of humble inquiries like, I don't quite understand what's going on. How could he say this? I see him doing these mighty things. Help me understand. No, they, they came in opposition. And they should have known better. You know, not only were they experts in the Old Testament who prophe- that prophesied about who Jesus was or the coming Messiah, uh, these scribes came that day because they had heard of Jesus and what he had been up to. Many, if not most, had heard him speak. They had seen the signs that he had been performing. And right before Jesus turned his attention to the paralytic, what it, had it been that Jesus had been doing? Well, he had been teaching the people there. I mean, he was teaching these scribes that day. But they still doubted and they still question. And we're supposed to see a great contrast between their doubt and their opposition and and the faith of of the friends of the paralytic. Those friends didn't hear Jesus preach that day, but they believed in what they had already heard and what they had already seen. They responded in faith to Jesus, and the scribes did the opposite. And the, the great irony of it all, right, is, is that in, in Jesus' response to the scribes, he makes his power and authority and divinity clear. Look again at, at verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Well, it's not that these questions and this opposition was voiced publicly, These were things that the scribes were questioning in their hearts, and yet Jesus knew and perceived the thoughts of their hearts. And friends, God alone knows our thoughts and hearts. But Jesus did more than simply perceive their thoughts. He challenged them. He challenges them with that that question that he asked them at the the second half of verse 8. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Well, in other words, have you heard my teaching? You've seen and heard of the signs and wonders that I have performed You have ample evidence of my power and authority. You have the scriptures. Why do you still doubt? And he follows that with another question there in in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, now there's a, a sense in which neither of those things are easier, right? No man can forgive sins, and no man outside of the power of God working in and through him could make the paralytic walk. There's a sense that we kind of understand that forgiving sins is something reserved for for God, so in that sense, it's harder. But the point Jesus is making is that, in another sense, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say, rise and take up your bed and walk. And that's because only one of those two statements is immediately verifiable. We cannot see whether a man's sins are forgiven. 
I could stand up here and tell you your sins are forgiven, and there's, there's no way except for what you know of the scriptures to know whether that is true. But we can sure see whether this man can get up and walk. And so that is where Jesus leaves it until he turns his attention to the paralytic. So that leads us to both our, our final point and the climax of the story. So this third point is Jesus and your response. And I want us to look. So look with me starting at verse 10. So Jesus, but, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So imagine the scene if you're in the crowd that day, if you were just hearing this story for the first time as people are maybe telling it to their friends who actually weren't in the home that day. I mean, I could, I mean, just imagine that Jesus tells the paralytic, take up your mat and, and go home. I'd imagine you could hear a pin drop in that room. Like, what is going to happen? This is what we came for. And this is the cli- I mean, this is clearly the climax of the story here in Mark's gospel. Uh, what everything has been building towards, does Jesus have the power and authority to heal a paralyzed man simply by his word? Is this man going to get up? Is he going to walk out? Well, as often is the case, it's at the climax of the story that we find the main point of the story. It's no exception here in, in this story from Mark's gospel. This is more than anything else what Mark wanted his readers to see, what he wanted his readers to understand. And the point is this, if this man gets up and walks out, there is no reason to doubt that Jesus does not have the authority to forgive sins. There's no reason to doubt that Jesus really can forgive sins if this man gets up and walks out. There's no reason to doubt that Jesus is worthy of your faith and your trust if this man gets up and walks out. I mean, Jesus even says this. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the power and authority to forgive sins, right? He says, but you may know. He makes it clear. And that's just what happens. The man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So Jesus makes it clear that this is the reason that he performed the miraculous deeds that he did during his time on earth. Yes, he had compassion for those in need. He had compassion for those who were struggling against the physical effects of a sinful and fallen world, who were experiencing the brokenness of sin through, through sickness and through disease, those who had demons, But more fundamentally, his miracles were a demonstration of his own power and authority and divinity. They were more fundamentally a demonstration of who Jesus was. They were a proclamation that the kingdom of God was near. The effects of sin were being rolled back. And it was an invitation for those who witnessed them to put their faith in Jesus, in that which which they could not see, that Jesus wasn't just a man, but the, the Messiah, the divine savior of the world, and that the forgiveness of sins, that salvation could only be found in him. And in fact, the astute reader of Mark's gospel would have recognized at least hints of this same message in the previous story, the one just immediately preceding our own, when Jesus heals a leper. In Mark 1.41, Jesus stretched out his hand, he touches a man with leprosy, and the leper was made clean. Jesus was not made unclean. The Old Testament law tells us that those who who touched someone with leprosy were made unclean. Throughout the Bible, leprosy is a picture, either literally or figuratively, of, of sin. And so in his healing of the leper, Jesus is giving an indication, 
Mark, by putting the story right before, is giving an indication. He's pointing us forward that it's Jesus alone who has the authority, who has the power to make what is unclean clean. He has the power and authority to forgive sins. And friends, this this reality of who Jesus is, of this picture that Mark paints, it necessitates a response. So Mark highlights three responses to Jesus in this text and throughout the gospel. There's the response of the scribes, there's the response of the, the crowds, and then there's the response of the paralytic and his friends, the response of, of faith. So I want to take a moment to, to re-examine these responses in light of the picture that Mark has given us of Jesus. And as I do, I want to ask you to ponder a question as we walk back through these responses. Which of these responses best characterizes your own response to Christ? How will you respond now that you've been confronted with the divine Savior of the world? Will you respond like the scribes? You know, you may be sitting here this morning and you may doubt Jesus. You may be skeptical of the claims of Christianity. You may be wondering how you can be sure that God exists and that Jesus is who the Bible claims to be. That Jesus is who I I have told you and Mark has just told you who Jesus is. Well, so I want to talk to, for a moment, for those of you who know yourself not to be Christians or who maybe just know that that you're not sure, uh, that you're doubting the claims of Christianity. If that is you, maybe you think that if Jesus really healed this man and you had been there, then you'd believe. Or if God would just do something like this today, well, then you'd believe. It'd be easy. If if a man came down, was, was lowered, if Jesus was standing here and he healed that man, all right, yes, I would believe. But that's not the picture Mark paints of the scribes and the Pharisees that witnessed this miracle. Their doubts don't vanish once they see this paralytic healed. The story is really just the beginning of their questioning of and their opposition to Jesus. You can go home this afternoon and you can just read the next couple of chapters of Mark's gospel. They accuse, uh, they question Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors. They accuse his disciples of ignoring Sabbath law. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and they begin plotting how to destroy him, Mark tells us in Mark 3, verse 6. And eventually they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Mark ends up in just the next couple of chapters of his gospel painting a pretty damning picture of the scribes and their rejection of him. They failed to recognize who Jesus was. They doubted Jesus, and they did so in spite of the signs that Jesus performed. Now, why? How could they see these things and not believe? I think that's the natural question, the one that we often ask. Like, how in the world could they see these things and not believe? Well, it's because their doubt and their questioning did not come from a lack of evidence, but from the wickedness of their own hearts. It came from hearts that were hardened to who God was, hardened to the things of God, that were opposed to God. And the scriptures tell us that our own hearts are deceitfully wicked, that we're opposed to God, that apart from God's grace, that we have hearts of stone. And so if We really go near the end of Mark, much later in Mark, when the scribes and Pharisees hand over over Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. Mark records that Jesus perceived that it was out of envy that the scribes handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. So we see at least some indication of what was in their hearts. At least part of the reason that they hand Jesus over is that they're envious of losing their position to Jesus. These were the religious leaders of the day, those who had the respect of these crowds that are now gathering to see Jesus. Uh, But they don't want to lose their influence with the crowds. They're envious of Jesus. They're envious of these crowds that have gathered to see him. 
It's a reaction to something similar to a father who watches someone else give a nice gift to his children, and then that father assuming that the gift giver is out to turn that child against him and to win the child's affection for himself. A father assumes the worst and responds in coldness or anger out of a misplaced attitude of the heart. Well, it's the doubt of the scribes. It springs from their own sinful desires. It wasn't a lack of evidence that led to their doubts. It was their sin. They had the same fundamental need as the paralytic that day. They needed to be forgiven. They needed their sins cleansed. They needed to be willing to humble themselves in the way the paralytic's friends and the paralytic himself were humbled by getting lowered through a roof to see Jesus. Jesus was calling them to repent and believe, but instead they hardened their hearts. The scribes and Pharisees had ample evidence of who Jesus was. And friends, the reality is so do you. If you are here and know yourself not to be a Christian, I want to gently suggest that it is not for lack of evidence that you doubt and question the claims of Christianity. Now, how can I say this? Well, for one, because God has revealed himself in his creation. You can read about that in Psalm 19 and Romans 1. There's evidence uh, that God exists in creation. And God has revealed himself to you in his word, in this Bible that, that you may be holding in your hands right now. He has given you the whole Bible, all of which reveal to us the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. But I can also say this because Jesus has performed a much greater sign than the healing of the paralytic. Friends, Christ died and rose again. He's alive. He has risen. Death could not hold him. The New Testament that you hold in your hands was written almost exclusively by those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord, who saw him following his resurrection. But friends, the ultimate point I want to be making to you is that, that faith is a matter of the heart. Like, I hope I have presented to you a compelling picture this morning of, of who Jesus is. But if I haven't, I know God's word has, and I know God's word does. So friends, if you don't know this Jesus, I urge you to search his word, to approach him in humble repentance today. Don't harden your hearts towards him like the scribes did. Ask him to meet your greatest need, to forgive and cleanse you from your sin but only he can. It's only Jesus who has the power and authority to forgive sins. And we find in his word that he promises if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, to my Christian brothers and sisters, and maybe that you're here this morning struggling with doubt, struggling to have full faith in Jesus's power and authority to forgive. You know, perhaps you struggle with assurance over your own salvation, whether God could pass possibly have forgiven you for your past sins, your present sins that you're struggling with, or, or the sins of your future. Perhaps you struggle to share your faith because you don't think that coworker or friend or family member will ever believe. Maybe you've lost faith after praying for years that your children or parents or siblings or friends would ever come to faith. Well, doubt isn't something that magically vanishes at the moment of salvation. No, faith is a gift of the Spirit and the Christian life consists of fighting the good fight of the faith. So if that is you, I just want to encourage you to ponder anew your glorious Savior, this picture of Jesus that we see presented to us in Mark's gospel this morning. Look to Jesus who died and rose again. Let this story of the paralytic encourage you. Jesus healed him simply by the power of his word in a moment, in a time and place that the paralytic wasn't even expecting it. Friends, follow the example of the paralytic's friends and run to Jesus. Turn to him in his word, turn to him by prayer, Turn to him by coming and gathering with the saints for corporate worship. 
Look, if these friends had stopped to consider the paralytic situation, they too may have been hopeless. I mean, who knows how long they had been praying for this man's healing. If they were willing to do what they did, I would presume that they had prayed for this man's healing. But they fixed their eyes and their hopes on Christ. And I want to encourage you to do the same this morning. So first, will you respond like the scribes? Or second, will you respond like the crowds? Now, the response of the crowds looks pretty good, certainly better than the scribes. Verse 12 says, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. But on a closer reading, there, there, there are hints that their response is at least incomplete. The story closes with the crowds expressing amazement for what they saw. They proclaim, We never saw anything like this. The account in Luke's gospel says the same thing. They were amazed at what they had seen. But it may be Matthew's account that is the most telling. He writes, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, first, let me say that it's good to give praise to God for what we can see. I mean, we just talked about how we see evidences of God in creation. It is good to give praise to the Lord for visible demonstrations of his goodness and his majesty. Well, it's like, so what is the problem with the crowds here? Well, the problem is that it's that Jesus healed the paralytic to call them to faith in what they could not see. It's that Jesus had the power and authority to forgive sins. Jesus says this is the purpose of the miracle that he performed. The crowds weren't to marvel that God had given such authority to men, but to recognize that Jesus was more than a man, that he was the Messiah, that he was God incarnate. It wasn't that no one in the crowds believed that day. I presume that there was some. But the pictures the gospel writers paint of the crowds is largely a people who are there to be entertained, to get their physical needs met, who turned back from Jesus when his teaching got difficult. You know, to go back to the, the, the gift-giving illustration, they were like the kid who receives a gift, a gift at Christmas and instead of giving thanks to the person who gave them that gift, just turns and asks, well, where's my next present? And in Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says this about the people of Capernaum, the people that were gathered there that day and witnessed this miracle of Jesus. Matthew writes, or Jesus is speaking here, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Like the scribes, the the crowds remained largely unchanged by what they saw that day, what they had witnessed. While they glorified God for what they could see, they they didn't see Jesus for who he was. They didn't come that day to be close to Jesus. They didn't come to get near the Savior of the world like the friends of the paralytic did. They didn't see their own need to be forgiven. They missed it. Well, in a Pew Research study from 2018, a full 23% of those who considered themselves religious— but did not regularly attend services, said the reason they didn't go is because they hadn't found a church they like, something that appealed to them, a worship style maybe that was the best, a people that they really uh, liked immediately. But perhaps more alarmingly, nearly 40% of regular churchgoers said one of the following was the most important reason that, for their church attendance. To be a better person, to be part of a community of faith, Others said for comfort in tough times. Others said to raise my children morally. Others said because the sermon is valuable to me. I get something out of it. And others said to please my spouse or family or continue a family tradition 
or from a sense of obligation. Now, you know, very few of those reasons are bad in and of themselves. You know, maybe the sense of obligation one, that doesn't sound great, although Christ does command us to gather with his people. Um, But there's a problem when that's listed as the most important reason for our church attendance. Those reasons have nothing to do with God himself, nothing to do with thanksgiving for God's mercy or God's grace, nothing about obedience or gathering with God's people, nothing to do with giving God the glory he is due. They're all self-focused. Like the crowds, those responses miss the point. So what about you this morning? Why did you get up and, and why did you come this morning? Perhaps you come week after week. Why do you do it week after week? What is it that you're looking for Jesus to provide? Is it mercy? Is it grace? Is it forgiveness? Or is it something else? Now, what would be revealed by the content of your prayer life? Do you only pray and ask God to meet your physical needs? Or do you also come before him in in confession and adoration and thanksgiving? Are you tempted to think that you must have done something wrong when life gets tough, that maybe you're outside of of God's will if life gets difficult? Have you allowed yourself to subtly believe that Jesus is there to fulfill your desires and to make your life easier? And what do you give God praise for publicly? You know, what conclusion would people draw from your social media feed? That you're blessed in Christ because you're forgiven or that you're blessed in Christ because life is good? Now, it's not wrong to give God praise for the good gifts that he gives us, for the good things that come our way. They are a gift. They're to lead us to worship our Savior. But I'm asking if you subtly move your affection to the gifts rather than the giver. The crowds love the gifts. They were there for the gifts. They were there to be entertained. They were there for the miracles but they largely didn't love the Savior. So the first two questions, will you respond like the scribes? Will you respond like the crowds? Or will you respond like the paralytic and his friends? Will you draw near to Christ in faith? We find these words in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Clench your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to respond in faith to God. When you have the same desire to draw near to the Lord as those friends, a desire that led them to dig through a roof, you're going to respond by daily humbling yourself before the Lord, daily seeking to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts by daily confessing your sin before him by resting in his grace. When you sin, if you have that kind of desire to draw near to the Lord, if you have an understanding of your own neediness, you'll respond like David did in Psalm 51. You will be desperate for God to create in you a clean heart, to renew a right spirit within you, and to restore to you the joy of his salvation. And brothers and sisters, you can draw near to the Lord in confidence and in faith because you have the promise that if you do, God will draw near to you. Because Jesus is mighty to save, because Jesus has already drawn near to sinful men by coming to earth, by dying on the cross, and by being raised again, because he cleanses sin by his blood. And so as I close, let these words from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, encourage you. He, he being Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Now, isn't that a great summary of the main point of our text, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him by faith? 
He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what a glorious picture of our loving Savior. He is worthy of your faith and trust today and always. Please pray with me. Father, as I prayed at the beginning of of this message, Lord, I pray that uh, Lord, this picture of who Jesus is would capture our hearts. Lord, it would lead to worship our, our Savior who came. Lord, took our sin upon himself, who died for our sin, that by repentance and faith we might have eternal life. Uh, Lord, that one day there will be a day, of, of the, a day that we hope for will, where there will be no more sickness, where there will be no more disease, where there will be no more paralysis, no more tears, Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, you would help us not be captured by the things of this earth, to look to you only for, to provide what makes our life on earth easier. Uh, But Lord, we would look to you for forgiveness. Lord, we would be content always, content in you, because if we are yours, you have forgiven us. Lord, those are glorious gospel truths. We want to give them, give you praise for them this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.